Hi everyone, welcome to Potluck Food Talks. Today we have a very special guest, Rebecca Perez Jerónimo. She's a publisher and we're going to talk about books. Yes. How are you, Rebecca? Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you for the invite. <laughs> I have a lot of books around me, so I hope we can dig in and talk about them. Yeah, we were also talking about that you just uh, were recently in Venezuela. And that right now is a good moment to go because probably they're going to reactivate all the sanctions. So this, this golden age that we're living right now, it's going to get over soon. What, what are your impressions on that? Yeah, it's very, it's very surreal. I actually recently started rereading A Hundred Years of Solitude. So Macondo and Garcia Marquez, and it reminded me so much of uh, Latin American countries that are so surreal. So I've been living in Berlin for eight years, and it was my first time coming back to Caracas. So I saw things differently from outside, and when I was there, it was like, this is so crazy. <laughs> How can this like be real? It's like a Macondo, of course. But yeah, uh, I recommend very much traveling there right now. Uh, it was a really nice trip. Also, food-wise, I got to reconnect a lot with my roots. So it was really nice for me to go back and cook with my aunts and do ayacas, arepas. <laughs> do you have any favorite Venezuelan food books? Um, well, the Bible, so Armando Scanone, has taught me a lot because it's like a book that Everyone had, no, like everyone had it at, at at their homes. For sure. So I've learned a lot from that one in particular. Yeah, like his recipes, I know by fact that, well, his recipes, he, he, he was like this kind of, I will use the word aristocrat, like living in a large house. And he had like this uh, ladies that cooked uh, at his house. And these were the, actually the, the makers of that book. The cooks behind. Yeah, but what he did is he measured everything with precision, and that that's why his recipes are so good. So it's a great book, Mi Cocina of Armando Scanone, to anyone who wants to get into Venezuelan cooking. Yeah. Because the recipes just work, and that's why everybody had that book. It's also like a really good reference. And I think these kind of things are, are important. I, I had lunch uh, a few months ago with Narda Lepes, and she was saying that everybody in Argentina cooks rice wrong. <laughs> because at some point there was some instruction somewhere like in a rice package that said that rice needed to be cooked like, like pasta, you know, like with lots of water and then straining it. So everybody was cooking rice like that because of that. That is funny. You know, so it's really important to like, like a good basis or a good reference. <laughs> But at the same time, like talking to my family, like about recipes, because I, we, we did ayacas, which I don't know if you've discussed ayacas in your podcast, but is this very difficult dish that requires a lot of work. So families get together and they all have like their own recipe. But it's funny because I was asking them like, hi, give me a recipe. And it's like, they don't measure anything. Like they do have a reference of things, but they do not have like this scientific or methodological thing of like writing down and putting the numbers. So it's really difficult to get like uh Precisions in the kitchen from the family. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I completely agree. That, uh, you also mentioned a uh, hundred years of solitude, and it's funny because when I I was thinking about uh, doing this talk with you and talking about books and literature and food, that's actually one of the books that came to my mind because uh, there are a lot. I wouldn't say recipes, but like dishes that he mentions, and they they give like this whole layer to the book. And it's always like, yeah, I was making a soup and the soup had this and that or 
someone cooked the soup that I did and they just mentioned the main ingredients. And for some reason, I always remember soups with plantain in that book, in 100 Years of Solitude. <laughs> and the other book that comes to my mind uh, that, that has like a lot of dishes inside is Don Quixote. True. And there has been a lot of, uh, or at least a few, cookbooks about Don Quixote, about the dishes in Don Quixote. And I imagine all these uh, dudes from Castilla and these kind of yeah. things, you know, like uh, from from Middle Ages. Um, yeah, it's uh, a, nice, a nice way to document like a, a time and place and a way to eat. And I think both books uh, do a good job at that. Yeah, I think when you start tracing back the histories behind dishes, like it can give you a lot of context. It's something that we do every day. So any detail like really tells you a lot about what's going on or yeah, the environment in general. So also like the way people speak about like how they cook. It's interesting. It's like we were discussing this thing about storytelling that I'm very drawn to. I studied literature. So of course, like we're discussing books. (laughs) And for me, the story behind the recipes or the story behind what we eat is the most important thing, or at least one of the things that excite me the most, aside from cooking, aside from cooking and eating, of course. Uh, <laughs> but like the reading the stories is really, uh, really important. Uh, I have a lot of uh, memoirs that are centered in food. Uh, and it's, I have a whole list that we can maybe like then start mentioning that we can recommend. Um, It's in this simplicity and in this like very honest and intimate way of dealing with uh, food that I am like super excited all the time, like with books in general. Yeah, but before we start, I I want to mention my favorite food author. Mm -hmm. Well, I told you, like I I just told you before the the call that I started a food blog just a few, like maybe two months, maybe three months. I'm publishing one article each week, just to keep my pen sharp, you know, and it's a nice exercise because, you know, I have to, I'm, I also learn to make them shorter. Now I'm writing just a five minute article. It's just like a quick topic, a quick mention on something. And I think that's also better to read for anyone. So in the whole process of getting into food writing, because it's, um, I'm also doing narrative on, on a different project, but food writing is like a different thing. It's its own thing. And I would say, my favorite author and and the most influential for sure for me has been when it comes to just food mm-hmm. is MFK Fisher, and well, I discovered her uh, on a Japanese cookbook and she wrote the prologue, and I remember reading this and she was describing a soup or yeah, I think it was a soup with some dumplings inside or something, and it really reproduced the experience of eating this, you know, like getting into the textures, the flavors, how they combine and the experience of eating it that I had like this almost, you know, like sensory memory of having that dish, even though I, I never had it. Yeah. And I was like, who is this? And of course I thought it was a man because MFK Fisher, you know, like you, you read that and it's, who is this? Yeah. And then I discovered, yeah, it was a woman, an American, and for me, it's a, the the best writing I read. I have her her whole work, and it's something I get often to to get a read and and to see like technically how she builds the stories. Because also telling a dish like the way of eating it, you can also add the same narrative st- structure that you would add to a micro tale or something. 
And, and yeah, I, I understand that after uh, I recommended you, you also read some books of her or, or got some book of her. Yeah, I have a couple of them and it's true what you're saying, like this multisensorial way of approaching uh, writing about food is so telling of her writing, like she's such a pro in doing that and she has inspired so many other writers in that, like, I don't know if, if it's a genre on its own um, and it's truly like... It's very endearing, no? Like, it's, like, very touching, as you were mentioning, that she was describing uh, a plate and then you felt all the aromas. And um, that's not easy to convey, I think. Uh, with uh, literature, when you play with, the, like, the senses, you have to be really good at it. <laughs> and, and she's really good. Another writer that I really uh, recommend that goes into that direction, she's alive, she's more contemporary. And her name is Tamara Adlin. She has this book, An Everlasting Meal. I found her, I think, after MFK Fisher. That was your recommendation. And she has truly also changed my way of like approaching food in general. It's like these meditations about food more than just like describing a dish. Yeah, they really go deep into like what that means and it's like a philosophy in itself. I don't know. It's really inspiring because I also have a, a, a blog uh, or I try to keep it up. I haven't written in a while. It's a link to my publishing house that is called Concordia Press, uh, in which I also talk a lot about plants. So I'm very interested in this intersection between plants and cooking, cooking with plants and or fermenting or experimenting in general, but like more dealing with edible plants. So I also try to keep my pen sharp and write, but uh, I've been working a lot. So it's a little bit dormant at the moment. It's not uh, so active. But yeah, just going back to Tamar, she has been so inspiring. And also MFK Fisher, just talking about like, the writing perspective, like models of people who I look up to, like I want to write like them because it's it's not easy. You have to practice a lot and eat a lot and cook a lot and be open to food. Yeah. Well, what I think I have like a unfair advantage is of uh, not only being a chef, but I have also been part of tasting panels where yeah. they train you to identify aromas and also a lot of tastings. You see these people that when, when, when I'm not a pro, but I've seen this, like uh, someone tasting a wine and using 20 descriptors to, to and, and you, you go like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tobacco, leather, exactly, blackberry, <laughs> like yogurt, milk. You know what? One of the experiments they, <laughs> one of the experiments they do when you're getting trained is they give you like a, a small thing to smell, and it's usually something really familiar. You know, you're, you're I know what this is, but the words won't come out, and it's because you're just not trained. And then it's something yeah. like really obvious, like cinnamon. I knew it. You know, like this happens. All the time. But as a, as a chef, uh, you get trained to that. Yeah. Tasting, you know, a sauce and you have to know what is missing because you already know the recipe and then you saw, oh, the cardamom is missing, you yeah. know, or this kind of thing. It's good. I mean, I'm super jealous because, yes, you get to train a lot and, like, really build up your vocabulary. I remember when I got COVID the first time that I lost my sense of smell, I found myself reading and researching about smell, which is one of the senses that people tend to ignore the most. Um, people tend to give more attention to, I don't know, the other senses. 
And with this pandemic, then there was kind of like a highlight on smelling, but that for chefs, I think it's like something so important because they're all the time like relying so much on smelling. And in my experience, because I have a lot of ferments or I tend to have a lot of ferments at home, I also was like really, yeah, lacking on like, or, or I was missing a lot, like the fact that I could smell or, and really tell like, oh, I have to feed my SCOBY or I have to do this and this because I couldn't like smell things. Uh, but yeah, I, I am digressing. I was, I just wanted to say that like for regular folks that do not work in the kitchen or, or are exposed to like dealing with vocabulary of smelling, it's really hard. Like it's really, it's really, that's why I'm jealous of you that. Then <laughs> like this is like what I just said that you have this micro bottles with just an aroma. There are this set to train uh, wine taste through beginners. So you get a set of, I don't know, uh, 350 aromas. And it's yeah. like a game, you know, you smell it and you have to, and after you do start doing that, you realize you're starting to use a part of your brain you weren't using, like uh, associating aromas with words. And that's quite interesting. And then also adding, of course, the layer of texture with, you know, describing how the texture was and, and of course, uh, the whole context and, and the place. But I, 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 I was talking just about food, food. But mm -hmm. when, when you go to the broader uh, of what is food, not only the, the, the sensory experience, of course, Anthony Bourdain. Amazing. And I'm pretty sure that he has uh, had an influence on my writing for sure. And the podcast, this podcast for sure. Like the kind of contents we deliver. He was doing that in yeah. 99, you know, like, yeah. and, and, and he's still extremely influential. So you had another book. You sent me like a list of recommendations. Um, more home cooking by Laura Laurie Colwyn. What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, Laurie Colwyn. Uh, I have it around here. More home cooking. This is a really interesting book in a way that it's very similar to what we were talking about um, storytelling and so on. Uh, but it has a format that I really enjoyed a lot, uh, like a hybrid of a writing book and a cookbook like an essay book and a cookbook because she mm -hmm. uh, divides this, like it, it's little fragments of stories and each fragment ends up with a recipe. Okay. So it's linking perhaps a memory or perhaps an anecdote or anything that is really personal to her. And then at the end, she gives you a recipe that is linked to that memory. So for me, this is, like, I want to do this. And um, especially because I think in Spanish, I haven't found a writer that has something similar. And I've been dealing a lot with like family recipes. So it's one format that I am also like looking a lot into uh, to see if I do a format, something similar for a project, which is like I said, like memories and then recipes and uh, the familiarity in this connection, which I'm. I think it's lovely. I think you would like, you know, Mugaritz, the restaurant, yeah. like one of their first books. And uh, they, they say them th themselves, and a lot of people say that, that it's kind of like when a band has their first album and all the, the cult fans, they say the first album is the best, you know, yeah. and then they became <laughs> something else. That, yeah. kind of that, that kind of happens with that book of Mugaritz called Chlorophyllia. And uh, so they had like a complete different style of cooking back then. But every single recipe represents a herb 
and most most of them are wild herbs. And then you have the recipe, which is like a you know Michelin star level technical recipe. Mm-hmm. But then there is like I don't know how to describe it. I would describe it like as a free writing from mm-hmm. from these authors that are not chefs. But the, these are like uh, you know fictitious anecdotes or or almost poems and prose or you know just like a free writing related to the herb, not to the dish. So you have this story about the herb, uh, the recipe, and that's how the book goes. And they, back then they, they were doing like really interesting and creative approach to, to cookbooks. I remember another one they did, which is almost not known by a lot of people. I think the the name is 35 millimeters. Uh-huh. And they invited chefs from all over the world to make a recipe related to a, a scene in a movie. Oh, that's nice. So I, I was working in a restaurant where the sh- where the chef got invited. So I saw the whole uh, invitation letter. They would get like the whole invitation, super formal of, oh, we invite you to participate in this book, blah, 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 blah. Also with a, a DVD in the box, uh, all with the <laughs> branding of the book they were doing with the movie so that the chef could see the movie and and, you know, cook something to it. And yeah, it's like, a, you know, these kind of books that are more conceptual, not exactly because you're going to use this to make a recipe, but you're just kind yeah. of like a, I don't know, like a aesthetic experience, you know? I like that very much. It made me think also that it's a different uh, type of book, but also these ways of dealing with recipes that are a little bit more alternative to having like a list of ingredients and instructions. And I'm talking about Nigel Slater. That he has so many, so many yes. books and he's so prolific. He has so much writing published and his recipes are just long stories. Like when you see the books, it's just like a big paragraph, three pages, and then at the end, a list of ingredients, you know. And I learned a lot more from that way of cooking, like that way of like, I don't know, presenting cookbooks. I'm not a trained chef. I wish I was. I'm just very curious about cooking. I cook a lot. I love it. And I learned a lot from cookbooks like that one, like uh, like the ones that present you recipes in a way that you can experiment yourself. And that's why, for example, uh, Tamara Adler uh, taught me a lot because it's like she says things like, oh, when you salt things, you have to salt with your hands. So you get used to the feeling of like how much salt you need for things like when you say oh this is a pinch or this is I don't know and those are like simple things that when you're a trained chef and you have to practice and do a lot of things that I don't do in my kitchen it's really helpful you know because it gives you a lot of liberty and also a room for experimentation and not feeling like you have to stick to one recipe to make it work you know that I think a lot of people approach the cookbook like Oh, if I change this, then it's going to taste bad or it's going to be horrible. It's not going to work out. No, it's like you can always do some tweaks and trust yourself on like what you're smelling, what you're like uh, tasting, especially that, not like you taste things. People sometimes don't taste things while they cook. <laughs> no, of course. And that, that's also, it's also a way to, to, to develop your own palate and have fun while cooking and understanding what, what you like and what, what you don't. It's funny because uh, professional recipes are exactly the opposite. They're just the list of ingredients and then the steps, super straightforward. Like yeah. 80 <laughs> degrees, 
half time, let it rest. <laughs> Done. You know, like just four words and that's that's a recipe. <laughs> that's why I'm not a chef. It's not, it's not my style. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another one I have here from the list you sent me is Crying in H Mart by uh, yeah. Michelle Sauner. Yes. So this is also a memoir book and it's a very heartbreaking story about how one daughter connects to her mother um, when she gets sick and they connect through food. So they're Korean she's, and the daughter is Korean-American. So she starts getting to know the food from Korea, cooking for her mom. Like she connects with her mom after having a very difficult relationship. And it goes like that story is just like this passage of like connecting daughter mother and then the mother dies and like at least she lives with this uh, beautiful yeah connection to to her through cooking so it's really nice because also a lot of things that I didn't know about Korean food especially like what I like the most also is like how food can be medicine somehow the type of food that you eat when you're sick uh, the type of food that you eat when you're feeling that way or another is very is so embedded on what she's telling and i really like her she's also a um, musician actually she's the lead singer of japanese breakfast which is an amazing title for a band <laughs> uh, so i also like the fact that she's coming from another place like i like hybrid things and like really things that come together from different angles. So I think that also was something that interests me a lot about this book. I really recommend. Like a super classic, I would say, when it comes to food literature or narrative that involves food, I would say it's uh, Laura Esquivel's, uh, how's the name? Uh, uh, for Water and Chocolate. Yeah, yeah. Paragua. Like, uh, in yeah. Spanish, I remember the most. Como agua para como chocolate. Como agua para chocolate, yeah. Yeah, I remember reading that as a kid, actually, and never again. And also <laughs> the, the movie, I remember it was a super nice movie. Yeah. Like like this uh, traditional Mexican cooking in a huge house. And, and there were a lot of super interesting recipes and all with uh, this layer of magic realism that you will find in... A lot of Amer Latin American literature. Always. <laughs> always, in always. In reality. In Latin American reality as well. <laughs> yeah, another book that is also, I think I didn't mention it in the list, but it's also really a catch. Uh, I think it was published in 2022. It's by Rebecca Mae Johnson and it's called Small Fires. And it's about recipes in the way that, like, how she presents the book is that she repeats one recipe for... I don't know how many hundred times. So she's all the time talking about the same recipe, but also reflecting on what is a recipe and how does a recipe behave in different contexts with different people. And I'm curious to pick your brain on it. That's super interesting. Yeah, because I mean, you as a chef, like you have to repeat something and you're striving for consistency, no? Like you have to make it like as consistent as possible because you're working. No, but... No? But uh, oh, yes, you do. But in restaurants, recipes have an evolution. Like if you see in a restaurant, like a recipe at the beginning of the year and at the end of the year, the recipe has changed because uh, it has been optimized, uh, hopefully for best, you know, but you also get yeah. to see them uh, changing for worst, you know, like, <laughs> oh, no, no, now we're skipping this step because 
you know, like actually you always want to simplify as much as possible. And especially in a restaurant, you know, you, you don't want to make uh, steps you could save or or do things that don't have anything unless there is a reason for it or unless you are very, you know, obsessive chef that wants like super, uh, <laughs> you know, like complex technique. But also I, I remember this chef, he has a super nice book also, uh, Tetsuya Wakuda. He's like a Japanese-Australian. He used to be very big uh, 15 years ago. I, I, I think he still has a restaurant, but he, he used to be like uh, regarded as one of the best chefs in the world back then in the 2000s. Not anymore. But yeah, he would talk about serving the same dish for 20 years. The same, same dish. One of his classics, it was a wild salmon, but uh, that it would evolve through time, that it was not the same dish anymore. You know, like, like that's also interesting. I love this idea of this transformation in recipes. Um, I do a workshop that I've been doing for several years now that is called Fermentation as a Metaphor. It's inspired by a book uh, of Sandor Elix Katz that is called The Same Fermentation as Metaphor. And I do this, like it's fermentation and writing. I chose to uh, work with the sauerkraut because I think it's one of the easiest ferments, more like they're... I don't know. It's very, it's a generous ferment because it's really hard to get it wrong. So I usually do these workshops in very short periods of time in which we would, we work on a sauerkraut together. I teach the people like the basics of fermenting. And then we write a text uh, that is based on this experience of doing uh, sauerkraut. So I invite people to observe their own sauerkraut through, I don't know, a period of like two weeks and then smell it and see how it behaves and the bubbles that arises and all of the, all of these things. Name it. Very important. Yes. Name it. Give it a name. All of that. So it's like, it's funny because the idea with it is that um, from the basis of the first uh, exercise that we do, which is making this sauerkraut, we all have the same ingredients, but each sauerkraut will be different, of course. And then also all the writing will be different, even though we're like starting from the base, the base is the same. So it's the same ingredients and also like the same exercise they all have to do. So I've been repeating this workshop for a long time now. And I used to say to myself, oh, maybe I'll, I'll get bored because it's like doing the same over and over again. But I see how it's been transforming and all the stories that come with it is so much fun because like people are like, their minds are just wonderful. <laughs> Is that I've I've had like many many uh, beautiful encounters in which like yeah it's like you're doing the same and you're using the same but it's always so different and I really like that. I don't know if you have felt anything like that with recipes or with uh, any type of like I don't know special play that you repeat often. Um, I can recall like having a special relationship. No, actually a super common question that, that anybody who is a chef gets asked all the time. And at least I don't have an answer is what, what is your speciality? And I'm like, well, I don't have any. <laughs> I just do things, you know, like and most of the time. If I'm cooking at home, most of the time I'm freestyling. I, it's very, very rarely I will be following a recipe because I, I just want to have fun, you know, like because yeah. I have the technical knowledge. Uh, otherwise, I would be worried uh, from doing something wrong. 
You mentioned Sandor Katz. I met him. Uh, I went. I went having pinchos and beers with him here in San Sebastian. Amazing, amazing guy. And oh, he's in, he's incredible. <laughs> and and uh, I was at a, at a workshop with him. He was doing sauerkraut as well. And I really, really recommend his book, The Art of Fermentation. Of course, a Bible. It's an amazing book. And it's funny because my, my friends that are really fermentation freaks, like uh, Diego Prado, when we were talking about that book, of course he likes the book, but he's like, yeah, it's super nice, but, but it's a novel. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's more like into technical books, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like too narrative, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, it's nice to read a novel on fermentation and, and yeah. seeing all the, the different approaches and techniques and, and the stories behind it. Well, of course, you see my tendency. So I'm more into storytelling. So I see that book, The Art of Fermentation, and it's like, wow, this is so cool because it's like he's telling you a whole story about where he learned to do this or that. And then in the middle, you have the technique, no? And so that's... I really admire him a lot. He's been a huge reference for me, um, especially because he blends these topics that we're talking about. Uh, like this storytelling is super important to him, but he's also a very, like he, when you're dealing with that amount of like, I don't know, um, fermentation knowledge, you do have to get technical. You cannot improvise that much at, at some point. Yeah, it's a lot of information in that yeah, book for sure. a lot, a lot. Uh, so cool that you met him. <laughs> yeah, the other book that I really like, I don't know if you know this one, uh, The Third Plate by Dan Barber. Yes, I have it here. Because that's a chef and also a storytelling and it talks a lot about food systems and also... Like kind of like a journalist approach about specific chefs and producers and the story and everything. Uh, and yeah, I think it's it's quite cool. It's a super good read for sure. Yeah, I, th I think it has also this um, political view of uh, food. And he's working from his, uh, so his baseline is restaurants, no? And it gets really political. And I really like that. Uh, it made me think on one of the books that I sent you by Alice Waters. Um, come into my senses and it's this memoir about like her developing Japanese and all of the political struggles as well in between and why she decided to go to to choose this path because when she started there was not like this concept of farm to table or not as she started developing at least that I know of. That's something I could read because I, I'm a big fan of Alice Waters and, and uh -huh. she's hugely influential uh, in all the restaurant movement, especially in the West Coast, uh, in the United States. But I've never read one of her books. I've read articles, opinions, quotes, these kind of things, you know, recipes, but never one of her books. So th this might be something I could get. You know, I'm not reading from a few years on. I've been just listening to audiobooks because mm. it's my way of consuming books. Like I get the audiobooks and I go for a walk. You know, it's better than being, laying on the couch. So I do two <laughs> things at a time. And it's a different way to consume the same content. And yeah, thinking, especially with long books, I do that. Yeah, because I, I rather having walks. Uh, some, yeah. some, you know, like a long novel can last like 30 hours of audiobook. It's also very useful now because we're on the go a lot so yeah it's true that with books you have to have a pause from all this movement in which we're involved to uh, in everyday basis 
and made me think like uh, I was curious because um, I really like podcasts about food in general. So I appreciate the work you're doing because it's really fun. Also, like it's really meditative for me when people actually explain recipes. It's really interesting. I don't know. It's like uh, I've been listening to a, a few podcasts that they just like talk about recipes. And it's funny because when people are linking to the storytelling, they're telling you about the food. It's really soothing for me. Yeah, I guess it's like I once heard from a, a TV chef. He was saying that, that some study proved that 99% of the people that watch uh, TV shows don't cook the recipes. You know, like... They just enjoy watching the cooking. <laughs> it's like a way of entertaining in itself. That's it for this week's episode of Potluck Food Talks. If you like what we're doing, make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok as Potluck Food Talks. The show airs every Monday.